If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Yo, man. What's been good? Uh, just been busy, man. School. School. And more school. Yeah, I'm, but, I am not jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, so glad I'm done school, man. Yeah. Oh. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm a professional student. Um, and even just like teaching. <laughs> Um, so I've been doing like, um, some teaching, uh, in the classes and curriculum stuff and, but it's, it's been fun. Um, and you know, it keeps the wheels turning. Of course, in light of all this COVID stuff, it's uh, kept me definitely prayerful, but you know, so far so good. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny, uh, the, the Mises Institute actually launched a master's program and there's like tempting in me to be like, Hmm, maybe I want to do that. But I mean, in general, like, I mean, when you say the teaching side of you, you know, I love learning. I just hate school. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I, I love reading. I love learning. I love, I mean, I love podcasts, right? Because I, I want to engage and, and, and learn. But, you know, the the rigor and and that side of it and partly just like, I, you know, with full-time job and all those other things and, and kids, like I can't even fathom. Like I got a buddy of mine doing his MBA on, on like weekends and, and like, man mad respects to anyone who goes back to school in essence because like i i just couldn't do it <laughs> yeah no and after once i'm done i'm gonna go back and do some more so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it is what it is man but yeah so uh back to the topic at hand or to the topic at hand yeah to the topic at hand well i know this does uh, kind of mimicking a snoop line but oh. uh <laughs> yeah back to the topic at hand or is it lecture uh, Correct. Send me and let me know if uh, it was lecture topic. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, so um, today uh, we're going to be talking about some indigenous issues. And hopefully this won't be the last of these kind of episodes, because especially as, you know, Joel, I feel as like Canadians, this is one of those um, topics that gets kind of swept under the rug and there's a lump under the rug and then we keep tripping over it and then um we hit our elbow on the coffee table and we're like oh that's stupid lump um but (laughs) yeah like the problem keeps popping itself up and then we notice it and then you know we deal with it five minutes like yeah but it's fascinating it's fascinating because um when you look at like politically especially when i started watching the canadian um political debates and everybody would definitely pay the indigenous issue lip service Mm. but that's Mm -hmm. about it and everybody across the board always agreed that you know technically all you really do for indigenous people is give them lip service you give them a land acknowledgement and you keep it moving and you know especially you know looking at social justice i i I think this is a a social justice issue Mm -hmm. and really looking at well what can be done versus um, just giving a land acknowledgement, like let's really look at ways that can actually help them and and look at the things, um, the barriers that are there that's that's preventing them from progress. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, as you were saying that I feel like one of the problems is we try to find one size fits all solutions right um to some extent we like i think this came up uh a little bit when we were doing the canada's racist policies episode um mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. because of the indian act was sort of that part of this conversation because of the six classes of cit- canadian citizens and i probably made the point at the time that because i know i've made it before i think on the show on the podcast that to some extent the way we do you know the in, the land act or the the land recognition as you put it the in, through the indian act we essentially have all these mini socialist utopia experiments because nobody owns the land nobody owns anything they have a collective ownership and uh you know when i, I might have been that episode it might have actually been when we were talking about foreign aid to some extent and i don't know why but we were talking about the wetsu tribe with respect to the pipeline and on one of the recent episodes and and to some extent you know there's a 
divide between what sometimes the leaders of the say tribe for simplicity want and what maybe the you know the 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 civilians if you want to call it that want and so to some extent this the the land recognition maintains the political power and and so my my point about um a one size fits all solution is that you know maybe allowing for unique options right okay this tribe wants to try this go ahead right this look this section of land we're going to try this this you know and, and instead of just one size fits all here's a new solution you know it's sort of the the market competition idea let's experiment let things happen see which creates more progress which creates uh regression what's what you know so I mean, and, and I don't know how, if you know how bad some of the things are. Like I had a, um, a relative who did their first teaching, you know, teacher's college sort of post-teacher's college first teaching um, on, a, on a reserve in Saskatchewan. So basically Northern Ontario border. And like it, it's, it was like heartbreaking, like heartbreaking to, to hear the kind of thing that goes on. Um, like, you know, 13 year old kids showing up to class drunk, right? Like half the kids not coming every day because they're just getting drunk. And so, you know, to your point, like, you know, we as a culture society sort of like, don't even think about this as a problem. Don't worry about it until, you know, they're trying to build a pipeline and they're protesting. And then it becomes, as you said, the bump we trip over or the thing, you know, it's this issue starts to poke its head through. And now we have a conversation about it. We pay it lip service and then don't talk about it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what, what's going to launch our conversation is an article from the Fraser Institute by by a young lady named Ravina Baines. And the article is called Property Rights for All Canadians, the First Nations Issue Forgotten by All Federal Political Parties. And in it, she says, consider this fact. In Canada today, there are three groups of people who cannot legally own property. Children, the mentally incompetent, and First Nations people who live on a reserve. That's right. First Nations people in Canada who choose to live on a reserve are grouped in the same uh, same category as children. So how is this possible? Well, under the Indian Act, First Nations people do not own their own land. Instead, it's held for them by the government. Because of this policy, First Nations people who currently live on reserve do not enjoy the same property rights as every other Canadian. Unreserved members are unable to earn equity on their home, use it, use it as collateral to borrow money, sell their land to whomever they choose, or bequest their wealth to their children. So, I mean, it, the, you know, the, the, the first question, you know, I'd like to clarify, um, or ask is what is the Indian Act? Um, you know, the, you know, the Indian Act. Indian Act is one of those uh, things you remember uh, learning about in middle school, and then basically it's all a blur from there. All you know is that things went really bad. <laughs> I mean, if that, like, I mean, how many people really remember it, right? You're sort of like, like you said, to some extent, I would argue we, at least from what I remember, it was like we paid it lip service. Like you sort of knew about it. That was it, right? Like the teacher sort of checked the box. Okay. I taught this part of the curriculum done. Um, and, and, you know, I just say that because I think I've learned more either through, um, you know, for example, like this is so super random, but like working at Sportcheck, you know, I remember someone being like, oh, here's my card that gets me exempt from HST. And I'm like, what? What, are you what is this? How do I get one of those? Right? Like, you know, so my, mm -hmm. my point is like, you know, the, the experience of, of what I learned in school, you know, yeah, there's an Indian act and, you know, it was a way to, to resolve conflict done. You know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's zero sort of comprehension and, and plus my part of my point is like, you know, are we teaching at the appropriate age that like, we're actually informing kids in a manner that potentially could lead to change. And I would say probably not because generally speaking, we're going to teach these things in a way that we don't want change. We want to say, well, whatever the government's for the most part, government schooling is sort of like government did the best they could. Here's what it is. And uh, yet nothing to talk about. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's not taught in a controversial way because, <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. But anyways, yeah. So, so the the Indian Act is a Canadian federal law that governs in matters pertaining to the Indian status, which we're going to talk about later, bans, and Indian reserves. Throughout history, it has been highly invasive and paternalistic as it authorizes the Canadian federal government to regulate and administer in the affairs and day-to-day lives of registered Indians and reserve communities. The authority has ranged from over overarching political control, such as imposing governing structures on Aboriginal communities in the form of band councils to control over the rights of Indians to practice their culture and traditions. So the Indian Act has also enabled the government to determine the land base of these groups in the form of reserves and even to define who qualifies as Indian in the form of Indian status. So, um, it sounds yeah, like the government's uh, deeply involved in what, what exactly these things are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I guess the simple solution or we would just say is, okay, well, why not like just looking at it face value? Um, why not just let them be, um, give them their property, but then that poses a question of, what the basis of our conversation will be about is like, what is a property, right? Like, how do you know something uh, belongs to somebody? Because the government is kind of positioning themselves to be um, gracious and not misrepresenting the government. Like the government is, is positioning themselves in, in a way that, well, they're insinuating that this is their land. This is government land. This isn't Aboriginal land. Mm-hmm. And so, Yep, you know, just yep. to play, just to be fair, because part of it, you know, usually, you know, when you get into conversations about indigenous issues, it's usually, you know, we, we have to kind of say um, the politically correct things or, or not ask certain questions. But the question, uh, you know, I want to ask is, okay, well, before we get into whose land is this, uh, the land is yours, the land is yours. Anyways, what is a property right? Yeah, that's, uh, it's it's such a deep question. And I mean, realistically, it's it's not, um, I think many people take that question for granted, right? Um, I mean, even, you know, um, let's take, uh, let's say the current cultural uh, affinity for socialism, right? For, I would I would suggest that majority of pro-socialist people don't even don't even know. Okay, well, what is property rights, and and what would it mean to remove property rights? Right? What would it mean if there was no such thing as landowners? Yeah. Okay, but first, what? How would you define what a property yeah. right well, is? Well, yeah. So I, I just wanted to say I just was trying to contextualize that that you know, that's a, it's a, it's an important question that I think we don't even talk about. Um, for me, I think the, you know, there, there's lots of philosophical stuff that you can get into on this question, but I think for me, the way that I, I want to say, I don't want to say talk about it for the layman, but, but if I'm having a conversation with somebody who's never really engaged it, I think the starting point is think about yourself right? Think about you, like you are, are the primary property of you, right? Like whatever, like my, my point is to say, let's start there when it comes to property rights, i.e. the idea of what's called self-ownership, right? That to me, that's the starting place of the conversation because it allows you to identify some pretty clear things. And, you know, let's the, the, I don't want to call it elephant in the room, but but sort of the clear counterexample is the idea of slavery, right? Slavery is the uh, removal of self ownership, and and so I mean I don't know what is your what is your take on that? Um, I mean I know we were going to go some with it, but but in terms of self ownership and property rights, um, do you think that's a fair place to start? Do you think maybe that's even too nuanced? Um, like, I where think, would you I start? Think what I I would start with what. How does one transfer their individual rights to a piece of property? 
So when we're looking at the indigenous issue or, or, and and when I mean indigenous, I'm not even saying specifically Canada, Mm -hmm. um, but just indigenous, um, Aboriginal ab meaning from the original people of a land. I think, I think we have to ask, okay, well, the land that they're on, the resources, is it theirs? So, so does any human being own a natural resource? And I would say no. I would say no. No human being owns a natural resource because the human being didn't create yeah, it. Yeah. So I mean, you're, what you're saying is, in the natural state of things, nobody owns it. Now, the, yeah, like like nobody can own the ocean. Nobody owns well, the and, ocean. I mean, like the ocean, arguably, is a uh, slightly more complicated. But um, I think you could apply the same thing to a forest. Yeah, well, that's, sorry, that's what I meant. Not ocean to forest, but yes, in general, yeah, yeah. like natural I, the resources. The reason I wanted to use a forest, because it's a little bit easier to sort of hash out, you know, what it looks like. Um, there are people who, who, especially in the libertarian community, would say uh, the reason why we have a pollution problem is because of nobody owns the water or nobody owns ocean or portions of ocean. Um, and, and I mean... Obviously, I'm not trying to hash out the nuance there. If someone's listener goes, well, what about polluting? Yeah, okay, there's there's a long conversation there, so don't don't throw darts at me. But let's go to the forest example. Um, the probably the simplest claim would be the idea of, um, or sorry, before I get there, the funny thing I wanted to say is we would say, oh, nobody owns the natural resources, but then how do we define the government as owning it? It's sort of a oxymoron or maybe oxymoron is not the right word but to me there's a level of like well no individual owns it but okay but this the collective representation of the people own it it's kind of like what does that even mean like to, and to me there's a bit of a, a logical contradiction there or or you're sort of just taking a step without making a, a sound argument so um the i think in general you know, if we're talking about the 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 creation of property rights, there's a this idea of what's called homesteading, and I think the simplest way of looking at it, or or terminology that's ever used, is to say someone be, would begin to own the land when they homestead it, and homesteading requires mixing your labor with the land. So the example would be: you walk into the woods, you find a forest, and you know, let's call it uninhabited for argument's sake. And then you cut down all the trees and start building a house on it. And and realistically, this is how mm-hmm. Canada settled. This is, you know, we essentially had people coming from European countries and the government basically said, you get to own the land if you build on it, you know? Um, yeah. But, but can I give some um, pushback um, to that, the idea, the concept, uh, just to nuance it? Um, because, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I've been doing some reading on um, John Locke and Lockean theory. Uh, John Locke being a, what is it, 18th century political scientist slash philosopher. You guys might remember learning about him in university or last year of high school. Um, but 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 Lockean theory is is arguing that just because a person lives on the land doesn't mean they own it because they didn't create the land. But what Locke argues is that one can transfer their rights to property by mixing their labor with the natural resource and creating um something i.e creating a house so if you created the house from the natural resource then you own the house but not the property in general like like his body of work was like most economists would he's he's arguing that you know the broader picture is you know it human beings their their responsibility is to use the resources uh most efficiently to promote Mm -hmm. um to help advance mankind um so 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 that that's what that's um what john locke would argue is that and i would probably agree with him on that Mm -hmm. that you would mix your labor with the natural resource and then create something new you so so you're creating something new versus like okay well i'm just bathing in this lake here so i own the lake um, I'm I'm using these branches to keep me warm, so I'm using the tree. Well, no, you're not. You're just using up the resource. And and for the listener, um, 
where you got to put this in like an 18th century context where let's say most land is uninhabited today uh the means to which you would do that would be generally not uninhabited land but if you think of your uh salary and uh wealth as stored labor uh, because essentially you've accumulated income from your labor mm. uh, or uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial so you've you've created i would argue that's stored labor that you've then traded for property um mm-hmm. so i'm just i just wanted to you know make sure that the listener is remembering the context to the lockean argument and yes. i think there's an easy yes. way to sort of transition it to today where hold on, hold on. But, but before before we get there um i, I wanted to um we'll put this in the show notes uh, so there's an article on fee um and they the article was called the moral foundations of property rights and so in it there's this interesting blurb in it and maybe this will be helpful for the listeners to just think think through what these options are when it comes to property rights and so forth and especially original property rights so it says original claims to property are sometimes defended with a finder-keeper approach. According to this argument, the discoverer of, say, an oil field is its rightful owner. But if this approach applies to, to oil fields, it should also apply to the discovery of a continent, planet, or galaxy. Merely being the first to observe something or putting up the capital that leads to a discovery seems to be insufficient grounds for full private ownership. Other claims to property are based on first occupancy. But this argument, the first person to occupy a piece of land as its rightful owner, but merely being the first to set foot on, say, Mars, doesn't seem to create a moral claim to the entire planet. Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've sort of laid out a really good, uh, you know, example of how property rights is a is a complicated issue. Um, in in terms of what is it? How do you adjudicate? I don't know, how do you determine? I'm, I'm, I'm finding it pretty straightforward, man. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I mean, in this regard, right? Like, well, then, how does someone start to claim? you know, uh, you know, the example of the oil field, right? Cause like the Mars example to some extent, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how, um, let's call it the first, the first owner or the first person to, to step foot doesn't work. Okay. Take the oil field as an example. Well, generally speaking, we're talking like you discover an oil deposit. Well, what happens if two people, let's say two kilometers away, find the same oil deposit because it's connected. And so they've both dug wells, they've both mixed their mm-hmm. labor, they both discovered it, mm-hmm. and they've actually discovered the same oil reserve. Well, 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 well yeah, but I, but I would say, uh, but if they're if they dis- discovered the same oil reserve on separate lands, um, then they're just pooling from the same resource, no? Well, yeah, you're right, but the argument could be like, well. Um, you know, potentially, do, do they do they have to share it fifty percent? Is it based on who pulls it out of the ground first? Right. Like the point is, to some extent, that my, the reason I thought oil was really good because it came up in your example um, is that there's still sort of aspects to this that aren't as straightforward once we sort of lay the foundations. Um, and 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 I think it's important just to point out that this is you know something that. Um, I, I would argue, and, and if you look at, you know, North America, Western culture, um, property rights are so fundamental. And, and the reason being is um, look at it in the respect to um, the idea of, you know, storing up your, your labor in like, so I built a house on my property. But if all of a sudden I, it wasn't, it, it's like, I don't actually own it. And all of a sudden someone could come along and just take that away from me. Mm-hmm. I would have no incentive to actually build the house. Right. Right. So this is where the argument against socialism really comes into play is that the reason why the West or Western culture has been so successful is because of entrepreneurial spirit and an entrepreneurial culture where people keep the fruits of their entrepreneurial activities right and so when i take the risk to 
mix my labor and 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 put you know time and effort into something if it produces a, a significant gain i reap that gain whereas you know you take the contrast with an employee the employee doesn't bear any risk the employee agrees to a contract i show up i commit i commit my time to you and you're going to commit money to me the that that employee doesn't have any other risk profile their risk is is this the right job for me is this the wrong job for me should i be doing a different job for my career you know is this enough money like they're they're different risk calculations it's not the risk of is this a good decision or a bad decision if i make the wrong decision the employee doesn't bear the consequences other than you know the employer may no longer be able to work with them but there's you know the legal ramifications there and and the reason i wanted to bring that up is is you know there's a there's a question about okay property rights maybe the listener might be like okay i realize this is a complicated issue but that doesn't mean uh, we i want to say throw complicated <laughs> well, so when i say complicated i think of the fact that you're going to have disputes that need to be resolved okay that so let's okay so stop let's resolve it let's resolve it right now whose land is it is it aboriginal land or government land okay so in in are you asking what are we I'm doing you, forward, man. or what are you asking me? How is it right now? No, I'm asking you like originally down to the root, oh. um, in, in origin. Well, so this well, is where well, I think, of course, of course, me and you agree. Sorry, I shouldn't say a joke like that because me and you both agree that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Me and you both agree that nobody owns the land. So, I'm assuming that the only way we'd know, well, the only argument we can really come up with with how is basically how the land what's the best way to use the land and i guess i'm already kind of answering the question that um when the british empire was um colonizing their attempt was to um of course expand their kingdom and do that by you know using up using the resources to expand their kingdom and and i'm sure you know when they came came to canada and they saw the indigenous people and the way they were using the resources they're like eh, we can use it better and so by and i would say um of course by force yes <laughs> yeah by by force and i would say um you know when you look at um you know many treaties in the indian act and the royal proclamation of 1763 where um where you know the british empire says okay you know what we are going to acknowledge your land rights. And I think this is important to note that in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, the British Empire says, okay, we're going to acknowledge Aboriginal land rights. We're going to section off everything west of the Appalachian Mountains. I know we don't have, I know we don't have a map of people like Appalachian Mountains. What, what is he talking about? Um, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty, uh, yeah, Basically, everything west of um, the Appalachian Mountains um, would belong to the indigenous people. And um, the colonizers, the American colonizers were kept out and kicked out if they were living on on reserve. So now the point I'm making is now when, when, when the British inserts themselves and they're saying, OK, look, we're going to set aside land for you. Now we are the ones who are going to um, mediate the dealings of how property will be sold and so forth. So we want this land. We want X land. We want this piece of plot of land because, of course, there's, there's great resources, great minerals to, to advance their cause. So it's okay. Look, we're going to compensate you for this, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to compensate you for this. Um, we see this in um, the Robinson Treaty in 1850. We're going to compensate you for this. Here you go. Um, now, of course, we'll get down later on down the road on what the implications of that were. But the point I'm making is that as the British Empire um, coming in, they are taking a more... And of course, I don't want to misrepresent any side. I, I want to try to um, not straw man any side and speak graciously. But I think that the British Empire was trying to... Of course, they thought their way was the best way. And they thought their way of handling the resources was the best way. So I want to quote from the um, great philosopher, um, Beanie Siegel, circa, <laughs> <laughs> circa way back 1997. Um, and, and the great Beanie Siegel says, it's either you get, you, you get down or you get laid down. Those are your options. 
All right. <laughs> it's either you get down or you get laid down. So, so, so here's what we're going to give you. All right. Cool. 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 All right. Now give us this land and now we're, it's a peace, uh, treaty. peace treaty. <laughs> so, so basically, um, what the British Empire is saying, okay, well, we can use the, this plot of land better than you. So move over. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think, um, there's an important thing to point out here. Property rights are a solution to essentially violence, right? Because property rights create a means to adjudicate disputes. Right. Okay, good. As opposed to by force. Right. Right now, you're sort of laying out the foundation of, and, and here's where I would say, arguably, they didn't do it well. And that is the concept of, okay, we, we want this land, we're going to compensate you for it. The the part of the predicament is you're trying to set up property rights in a place that doesn't have property mm-hmm. rights already. And so, you know, you're again, you know, let's take the concept of homesteading or, or other, you know, the the indigenous tribe might say, well, we are located everywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We, 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 we just move, we're, we're a mobile people. And so we spent two years there 20 years ago. So we own that land too. And, and so you end up with the, you know, my point is to say that, um, or, or we buried our ancestors there for 50 years, but now we bury them over here. And, and like, so the point is that I'm just trying to lay out is that they might be, the, the indigenous might be claiming, or the aboriginals might be claiming um, they own the land based on their uh, concepts. Yes. And, and um, yes. to some extent, you end up with this, you end up with violent conflict and they're trying to create a resolution mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm, violent conflict mm-hmm, through, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Appalachian Mountains, you know, treaty you can argue that that wasn't good. You could argue that it wasn't fair. Um, but, but that's not, I don't think that's a fair, uh, presentation because at the same time, you're forgetting that if no treaty was signed, potentially it would have been just warfare till one side was dead and one side was alive. Yeah. Well, 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 well you, you get laid down. Hindsight's 2020, right? My point is to say, we don't know what the best option was. You know, potentially the, this option actually was the thing that resulted in the least amount of death. And, um, and, 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 and that the nice neighborhood you live in in Mississauga. <laughs> right. As well, so that's the kicker. Cause we sit here today because we sit here today, you know, we do our land acknowledgements and, you know, it, you know, if I was, if I was, you know, if I was an indigenous person, I'd be, I'd be so offended. I'd be so pissed off every time they did a land land acknowledgement. Like I'd be so angry. Cause I'd be like, okay, so like, but I still don't have my land. Like, 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 come on, land versus an apology. Let's let's weigh the two. Like, I'd be so, I'd be like so, like, Indigenous Lives Matter. I'd be so pissed. <laughs> indigenous Lives Matter. It's good. It's it's a tough. You know, it's. It, I, I mean, I don't. I don't want to stay on this too long because. But I think, um, you know, it it is a tough. It is a tough issue right? Because we're, we're trying to look back in history and it's so easy to just take the moral high ground and be like, well, I wouldn't have done that. And it's like, come on, how would you have resolved this problem? Oh, I would have never traveled there to, you know, uh, colonize. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, but, but you know what, but even like it, but even like, you know, Joel, if you look at the argument, like for, from survival, like we, we don't live in a context where we're, you know, striving for survival. So back then, you know, if you really think about like whether whatever kingdom or tribe, whatever, the main goal is for your people to survive and to expand. And, and so, yeah, you're going to be, um, disrespectfully ambitious. Like if you, if you know how to use a resource better than these people here, and it's a matter of survival, Mm -hmm. right? Because like we said, like, yeah, like, look how everything turned out. Look where we live. Look where we live. You know, like, like uh, you know, it's terrible. It's terrible that, you know, um, indigenous people got the short end of the stick. But, you know, for the rest of Canadians who live in these nice, big, comfy houses and fancy this and and, and, and bike paths, bike lanes. <laughs> I hate bike lanes. They got bike lanes. Hey, I don't mind them through the middle of the woods, bro. Those are great. <laughs> Yeah, I hate bike lane, but anyways, but, but it it just, it just, it really sucks to, to see how, um, you know, not everybody's gonna, um, end up, um, happy 
and of course you know what like you said hindsight's 2020 we're going to move forward um in, into the present and look at these things hindsight so one way we can transition to that is so i mentioned the the, the royal proclamation of 1763 and that is in our charter of rights right now and that's what indigenous people point to as their rights because it was acknowledged by the british empire by the crown right so 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 there's continuity there historically when we look at there was a point where the british were acknowledging their rights and and it's in our charter right now um, but when we look at the dealings between indigenous people and the crown meaning the government well actually we, we still have the crown um as a symbolic figure but anyways um <laughs> but when we look at the dealings now we look at the impact of the um, indian act mainly in the area of status non-status so well and and just before we get there i d i think it's good to point out that like we sort of already said this but i want to really hit reiterate it we basically said the government owns this land right these people don't own the land right so if this let's say any given you know indigenous band or tribe okay sorry 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 joel joel, joel i don't want to put you in the hot seat but why don't they own the land why would you say well, they don't own the land? Okay, so you said that in the Indian Act, they the government holds the land for them. So mm -hmm. it if I'm understanding it correctly, that means they don't have the ability to sell the land. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to reap if if they've deemed the land to be really valuable and they wanted to sell it for the resource and move. Like or let's say they wanted to sell 50% of the land that there's recognized as theirs. They don't have that ability, which means they don't have any property right other than they can live on it, right? It's almost like they have a free rental agreement with the landowner. Um, and and so I thought it was important to point out that that in reality, when we say you know there's land, what was it? What was the term? You land recognition? Is that the is that the right term? Mm -hmm. You know, when there's land mm -hmm. recognition, what that is is saying here's land that we're not going to do anything with because there's people already settled on it who we agree to leave alone but they're not allowed to sell it in essence. Now I'm sure if they try, you know, if, if they want, you know, they could make an agreement with the government maybe, but they couldn't go and do things on their own independently. So this is, and, and why that's important is going back to, well, they don't really own the land. So they don't, of course, these are essentially, that's why I keep using the term. They're like little mini socialist experiments, right? Because, they don't own the land. They don't. They don't have. They have. They have a joint custody ownership that nobody can really custodian the land on, in and of themselves. And so, why do you see these problems with like some of the problems are absolutely insane. Like they'll build a house on the land um, for the indigenous people, and they'll start pulling the walls apart to use for firewood. Okay, but why is that? Because they don't own the land. They don't own the property. There's. There's this. And so there's no incentive to, to invest and maintain in it. it and they couldn't turn around and sell it and they can't, you know, there's no pride and ownership and, you know, all the things that like we, we look at the behavior and go, this makes no sense. Yeah, because we're imputing mm -hmm. if I was there under my circumstances, I wouldn't behave that way. But we're failing to recognize the incentives and the, and the the infrastructure. So I just thought it was important after we had all that conversation about property rights to to properly understand. Really, they don't have property rights. They have very different version of something like property rights that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess the alternative, like in my mind, like let's say the government, you know, tomorrow says, okay, you know what, we're going to um, give them back their land. But with that comes the withdrawal of any support, any um, retribution. You'd have to like, right? So, so it's a total to, like, okay, pardon? You'd have to do it transitionally. You can't just like, you know, because um, you're, you're well, sort of asking them to change the way of okay. life without. Okay, because you know, because you know, because you know, what this conversation is leaning towards reparations. And that's why, like, me, I'm sitting here and I'm telling you. Well, I look at the is welfare. There, is there a gradual. Pardon? I look at the welfare cliff as a as a okay. Well, concern. yeah, but you just said, but yeah, but you just said a gradual, and now you're talking about welfare no, because cliff. The, the whole problem with the welfare cliff is that they've rem they it's not gradual, right? So what happens is with welfare cliff, and I think we've talked about it way back. Um, I think we were using the example of Chicago, where like if I start making an extra ten grand, I lose twenty grand in benefits. That's why it's called the welfare cliff because 
you know, the idea being like, okay, let's just remove the support and give them a property. But but they're so accustomed to the the system the way it is that they're not prepared. And so this is where the idea of transitional, right? You don't want to like. Now, I'm not saying that to do you know to remove all the benefits and then give them property wouldn't work. There's just an aspect of like, are you going to make a bad situation worse in the short term um, that that makes you abandon the project altogether? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, because I'm just saying like that the extreme would be you know they get back their um their land and so forth, but if it would result in like the government saying, okay, yeah, you guys are totally cut off from any kind of support. If that's the case, um, how many people would say, okay, fine, let's do that. Because like the, what I was saying, just from the argument of like, from what black people and reparations, well, there is no limit to reparations. There isn't right. It's just going to be an ongoing handing out of uh, payments. Well, and, and- so let's let's contextualize that properly. Be, and so I think the if I let me correct me if I'm wrong, the argument that you're sort of basing that statement on is that if if we classify reparations based on the inequality that we see today, that potentially you the, in the future, oh well, there's still inequality, therefore more reparations are needed. Oh, in the future, there's still more inequality. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not even going that far. You're going, you're going way farther than I. Am. I'm just saying that um, money can't atone um, for those sins, and so it will forever be um, something that will always be paid out. That's all I'm saying. Oh, because yeah, because there, because uh, because of the severity of what you're trying to give reparations for, really, no no dollar figure can truly can match. Okay. It. Yes, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so so uh, okay, so we have the issue of um, the Indian Act with the status non status, and so um, for those of you who aren't clear on um, what that exactly means, is that. So there is, you have the um, indigenous people as a whole, the population, which is 4.9% of the Canadian population. Um, compare that to 3.5, black people are 3.5% of, um, of the Canadian population. So, so with that 4.9%, you have a group of people, you have the Inuit um, who mainly live in the Northwest Territories, um, and they are non-status, meaning status, meaning that um, that the government acknowledges their race and there's um, supports that come with being acknowledged status, legal status by the government. Those people who are non-status um, do not get any um, support from the government. Of course, they, they, they still see themselves as their own ethnicity, um, but that... Um, they just choose to operate apart from the government. So you have the Inuit, but they also had to like stick to a, like reserve locations, right? Whereas like who um, status? Yes, which doesn't. That's why I, I bring that up just because the Inuit doesn't surprise me because of where they live. That it's just yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. So for the Inuit, right? So so where the the Inuit because of where they live. Um, in the Northwest Territories, which is predominantly cold. Um, they're out there and they're living their lives um, and they're not, um, they're non-status. And then you have the Métis, uh, who is a mixed race of indigenous and French. Um, and, and they, because they're uh, a biracial people, um, they, they, the argument is they, didn't, they, they don't have any land, mm. right? Because they come after. Oh, I see. Right. So then, so then they fall into the non-status and now you have the first nations group, right? So the first nations, um, is, is those who will be recognized as status Indians. Now within the first nations group, um, you have those who choose to be, um, status and those who choose, choose to be non-status. Um, now we, we had our, um, <laughs> our research consultant and uh joel our research consultant um stefan the econ don and and uh joel uh crunched some numbers um from the 2016 census um do you want to explain some of those numbers and maybe um you know yeah explain those numbers and the graphs and the stats that you guys did 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a couple, um, I mean, the, 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 there's sort of two, uh, just to, to contextualize, let's say a bit of the, the numbers that we laid out. Um, okay. Well, sorry, Joel, can I ask you just off the bat, um, what percentage of first nations people status versus non-status? Um, so, uh, in, in essence, um, yeah, we, the, so there's, let's just, uh, I'll, I'll walk through it quickly. So we, we really like from this, uh, link, which I'll put in the show notes page. It's, uh, I think the page has actually been archived, um, but not a big deal. Um, the, the, because first nations are, let's say, as you said, their st- in general, their status, i.e. on reserve, um, there's a bit better ability to look at like who's on reserve status who's not on reserve non-status um whereas in the other groups because of as you already laid out the status non-status doesn't quite apply um you know the the on reserve off reserve really only applies to first nations um so first nations first off they make up 60 percent of total indigenous roughly i'm rounding up um so that's of the 1.6 or 1.7 million canadians that are indigenous of the indigenous population uh, just under a million are First Nations. And then 35% of them live on reserve and 65% live off reserve. Um, so actually twice as many people live off reserve as on reserve within the First Nations population. Which which I found fascinating. Um, and, and to me, that's something I would want to know more, right? I, w- I want to know um, what is the cause, right? And and what has the trend been there? That that kind of stood out to me um, in terms of other stats. The other thing, uh, so um, the Inuit make up basically only four percent of the one point seven million, which works out to like sixty five thousand. And then um, is it? I don't want to say it wrong, but Metis, Metis, uh, Metis, the Metis, Metis, Metis. Yes, Metis. But, screwed up. but also, um, I wanted to note, Joel, not to cut you off, but uh, these stats were also pulled from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. So this was a, a report um, that the government put millions of dollars in to pull these numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, so 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 we looked at those, and we looked at um. um 2016 census but sorry go ahead about the metis yeah so they make up uh so the 35 percent. so basically i said 60 percent, 35 percent, and about four percent um again there's um it doesn't quite add up to 100 because i was rounding off numbers but um you know the this is something if you're interested in you know first nations indigenous people um aboriginal populations you know i think this report would have some in- interesting information um so it was 2016 consensus it was released 2017 or october of 2017 um so again i'll put in the show notes page for for anyone who's uh, curious it's not just stats i mean obviously they translate the stats into you know verbiage um but they've got a lot of numbers in here because it is mostly sort of census based mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i think the question that i that i found fast that i would ask that i find fascinating is um that i didn't know and it's kind of weird because you know you hear it and you grow and you go to school and you hear okay status and this status and non-status and this and this and that but you know i guess for me as a black person i've always looked at it as this i've always interpreted the indigenous situation as this i'm a black person and usually the narrative i get is that we really suck we suck at everything and so what? you grow up thinking, oh man, like, you know, we suck. So it is what it is. And and then you start looking at the indigenous people as a black person. And then you're just like, oh, yo, could it be that there's a people group worse than us? And so it kind of got me asking the question. I'm like, so I just, I just find it really fascinating. How could they be worse than us? Or maybe we're worse. And so now I'm trying to like weigh who's, who's, you know, more terrible um or who's got the shorter end of the stick and so the thing that stuck out to me was status and i'm like wait a minute as a black person what would status look like that would look like me going to the government to get them to recognize me as a black person and and, give you money. and treat me um a certain way treat me um different um different 
than um than other citizens mm-hmm. as as to be like um a super citizen kind of thing or or something like that where you're kind of like okay i i found it i found the whole concept in my mind offensive that i would go to somebody to um to qualify me i'm i'm black i don't i don't i don't need somebody to affirm me as black i don't need and i said this before you know i I don't need the government to affirm me as black i don't need black lives matter to affirm me as black i don't i don't need pan-africanism to affirm me as black i i'm black i wake up in the morning it is what it is um you know you just go about your business right so Mm -hmm. for me as a black person i wouldn't i i find the idea ridiculous that i would go to um, the government to get them to affirm me. So I would ask the listeners, you know, just in your own skin, like how, 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 how do you feel um, about status? Would you, would you opt to look for status to be white status to be Brown a status to be whatever versus non-status like, okay, no, I'm cool. I don't, I don't need your help. I'm, I'm going to be over here. So, uh, so I noticed that there's, a group that's saying okay you know what i'm not gonna fight over the land i don't want the government help i'm just gonna you know um do my own thing here i i I love my culture i love my people i just don't need the government to affirm that um but joel let me ask you what's your whole two cents on this whole thing well my first thought is like you know i'm just sort of drawing the the contrast um that like uh you know, I don't, I don't uh, affiliate myself with any people group other than Christian. And and I don't mean that to sound like in any particular way, but like just trying to think back to like my childhood, like, you know, I really only was like, okay, you know, Christian was the, sort of the only category Christian and hockey player. I mean, obviously maybe Canadian, but, but in the sense of like, you know, if I'm different than someone else, right. Um, it was, you know, within school, within the school system, it's like, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really put people in those boxes of like, oh, that's this group of people or this group of people. I mean, I, I think the one exception would be like, um, you know, if there was a, uh, you know, a really thick accent that I couldn't understand, that'd probably be the the only exception where, you know, I would, I don't want to say other them, but like, you know, I see them like, because I have difficulty communicating, right? Whereas like, every other, you know, race or, or whatnot, who's, let's say integrated into Canadian, you know, like second generation immigrant, let's say. Um, and I only say that just cause I was like, as you were talking about it, uh, you know, sort of like thinking of, of being black as, I don't know, would you say a failure? Is that what you said? Or, um, or yeah. like, yeah, just in general. Yeah. Like I, I didn't like really this negative stigma. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, I'm just sort of contrasting that with the idea that like, I didn't really have, um, a group that I would have said, Oh, we are this, you know, about, um, and, and like I said, I said hockey, but that's just because of the sport I played. If I played soccer, potentially would have been soccer, right? Like it was just, that's a subgroup that I existed in. Um, and then the other one being Christian. Um, so anyways, I thought it was a, an interesting, you know, and contrast. And I mean, I can, I can think of reasons why, but also I would think, is that not, you know, culturally society wise, I think we, we don't, we, we would want to strive towards not having, you know, the child version of Darnell think of, himself in that way right in the next generation um and 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 so on right so um yeah i mean it's just uh you know similarly with regards to to the indigenous people like you know when i talked about my you know the the stories i heard about living on reserve and being a teacher um you know I, I can only imagine, you know, if you go to class drunk or stay home and get drunk as a 13, 14, sometimes 10 year olds. Um, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine there's thinking the same things, but 10 times worse. And, and, you know, if we want to uh, strive towards, you know, the, let's say every child sort of having a, a positive outlook on themselves, um, 
how much you know how much more work do we have to do in 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 the indigenous community to to change things um and you know there's this there's this movie and i can't i'm, I'm rattled i can't remember it but it was like it was about a um a guy who went out to i want to say yellow knife i don't know for sure but he basically brought uh lacrosse to the to the community to the indigenous community and it like transformed the community because so like he was having problems with kids showing and again it was like a kid who like this guy who accepted a job as a teacher um it was an unreal movie like it was based on a true story based on like you know telling a story about suicide and and Oh man, I'm, I'm rattled. I can't remember the movie, but it was, uh, it only came out a couple of years ago, but it, it was honestly, if I, I'll put the, I'm sure I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes page, but it was, it was really a, an uplifting movie because like, I mean, you know, suicide in those communities is, is, you know, outstandingly bad. Um, oh, I think it's called the Grizzlies. Yes. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Group of Inuit students, um, small Arctic town. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, you know, it's a movie I definitely recommend. Obviously it's not going to be the, you know, amazing budget, but anyways, it's, it's a really, really good story. Um, so yeah, my two cents on this is that like, you know, this is an issue that I think for most of us is just so foreign to our lives that it's hard to even comprehend what the problem is. Um, let alone what are the solutions um and and you know i don't want to and and i think my point i said at the beginning um i think you know as we talked through the idea that they don't truly have property rights this idea the idea i said at the beginning let's start trying micro experiments let let you know to some extent what does the community think they need right what is you know and and try to empower them I mean, my answer, you know, it's like, to, to some extent, we have universal basic income there through status Indians and, and financial support. It's clearly not working. Let's, let's, you know, let's stop trying to do the same thing and expect a different result. Um, and I think, you know, individual type solutions uh, are, is, is how we sort of... Um, think through, you know, is, is there a need to maintain the concept of a reserve? Is there a need to, to have these? I don't know the answer. And and I think people who try to proclaim that they know the answer, um, on, on a separate group of people is, is sort of one of the biggest problems we have in society today. Um, you know, I think allowing people to make decisions for themselves that, um, you're empowering them is, is how we start to see change occur as opposed to let's try this top-down solution and hope that it has a different result than we've been having for the last hundred years in, in these communities. What about you? What's, uh, what's your two cents? My two cents is I think, I think it's important for us to grasp the concept that, uh, the government is an institution therefore um it it cannot honor its vows it cannot keep its promises and i think that's where um this whole mess starts is that we're we're expecting an institution which we which is doesn't have eyes doesn't have a heart um to hold a vow to hold a promise to keep a promise the government can't do that um they just got to do what's, you know, politically expedient. So, so I'm not to be a Debbie Downer and, and be pessimistic, but yeah, you can't expect the government to keep vows. And so in light of that, I would say that um, God gives us our human rights and our, and our, our identity, you know, not the government. Uh, so we see these rights being played out in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 to 15. Um, thou shall not steal, thou shall not kill, um, pointing to um, the sacredness of, of human life and the human being and God making us in his image, his, um, his image bearers. And then the other point is that, you know, we love our neighbors, we love ourselves. Mark 12, 31. And then my last point is that God gives us property rights, not the government. So when we look at um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, um, 
God made all natural resources. So he has the right to tell us how to use it. And so he gave all men a command in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the cultural mandate uh, to use those resources to promote human flourishing. When we look at the new heavens and the new earth, no one will have their own individual piece of land. But God will reward people with the property according to how they stewarded the gift he gave them. Hebrews 10.34 For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What do you guys think? Let us know. Give us your two cents. Um, about the status, non-status. Um, did we drop the ball on a particular issue? This is not the last time we'll visit this topic. So uh, let us know what you guys think and what other aspects of the conversation that we missed that we can definitely pick up in for another conversation. Let us know what you think. You can contact us at sixcentsreport at gmail.com. If you're trying to contact me, it's Darnell Samuels on Facebook. And then on Twitter, on Instagram, it's do good Darnell, D-O-G-U-D-D-A underscore Darnell. And I'm T Joel N39 everywhere and Six Sense Report everywhere or Facebook and Twitter. Um, yeah, give it, let us know. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely put a couple uh, links in the show notes regarding uh, property rights. Um, especially, there's a couple from uh, Libertarian Christian Institute, which are, I found uh, pretty good. And just in terms of talking through, you know, how do we derive rights and some of the, you know, different arguments that exist. Success makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense?